Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 31st, 2017. This is definitely not the third time I'm doing this. And on today's show, we will be talking about War for the Planet of the Apes, uh, Oscar campaign, writers hired for the Spider-Man Homecoming sequel, uh, the Blade Runner 2049 running time. Some new Last Jedi photos that you're gonna we're gonna want to talk about, and uh, some rumors surrounding the Joker origin movie in the water cooler. We're gonna be talking about surviving Hurricane Harvey and the gay and wondrous life of Caleb Gallo, whatever that is. In our feature presentation, we're gonna be talking about who has who is winning Game of Thrones. And after the feature presentation, stick around because in the spoiler room, we're gonna discuss. New evidence to support a wacky Game of Thrones fan theory. On today's show, joining me are Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And of course, it's Peter Serretta. Uh, let's go to the water cooler, guys. Uh, last time we talked to you, Jacob, you were preparing for a hurricane. That hurricane hit on your birthday. Um, you wrote about you wrote about it on the site in the water cooler. Uh, what happened? How did it go? Well, in Austin, we just got a lot of rain and a lot of winds, some power fluctuations, lost power for about a day. 
but as you've surely seen from the news, the coast and East Texas and Houston in particular got really slammed. And it's been really bad. I'm seeing pictures of streets and highways that I've driven over dozens of times looking unrecognizable, looking like the ocean. And it's just been really horrifying, but also the stories of public servants rising to the cause and people helping each other out have been inspiring because tragedy breeds heroes sometimes, unfortunately, or fortunately in this case. And even on over the weekend, I saw a whole convoy of people with boats leaving Austin, heading for Houston. So Texas, stay with about Texas. We have, we have, there's a lot wrong with the state, but we come together and we protect our own. And I feel really good about that. And if you are watching this from afar and you want to know how you can help, in the water cooler, I linked to an article by NPR. Uh, if you Google NPR Hurricane Harvey, I'm sure you can find it yourself. If you don't want to, if you just want to go there directly, and it lists all the various charities, organizations, and groups that need help and can use money right now. So, either find it through the water cooler on slashfilm.com or I'll, I'll link it in the uh, show yeah. notes so people could just go to the show notes and click right into that. Yeah, that'll, that'll be great. But if, if you want, it's just list, uh, lists everything from. Blood donations, the food donations, even animal shelters. They're rescuing animals trapped in the flood. So if, if you are watching from afar and feel like you, you want to help in some way or help Texas or help Houston, uh, I would recommend checking this out and doing and doing what you can. Every, every dollar helps. And uh, for you, it was just rain? It wasn't... Um... Just rain, but my wife's family uh, who lives uh, in Port Arthur, Texas, had to evacuate last night, days after the hurricane initially hit land because the rain is still following, falling and their house is starting to flood. So it, it's still happening. It's not over, and it's going to keep happening for at least a few more days. Wow. Brad, you've been watching a new show that I've never heard of before. What is The Gay and Wondrous Life of Caleb Gallo? So it's actually a web series that I was just told about by a friend of mine that is, uh, you can watch it on YouTube, and it came out la- last fall, I think it was. And it's just this really funny series. It's kind of like got a little bit of girls in it meets uh broad city mixed with i guess um i don't know i don't know but anyway so like the premise itself is it takes place in los angeles follows these five different people who are all all aspiring actors in los angeles which doesn't sound very exciting but the characters themselves and the style of the show is what makes it good it's got this really sharp witty banter that goes back and forth between them and it also has a wide variety of characters that you don't usually see on television unless they're being used for jokes or stuff like that. The main character is uh, a gay guy played by Brian Jordan Alvarez, who also wrote, directed, and produced the show. And then uh, it follows his other friends, like one of them who is like kind of going back and forth with his sexuality. Uh, there's a, a gender-fluid character called Freckle, who is hilarious. Uh, the character is super sassy and really funny. And then uh, it's just you, the relationships between these characters. It's really it's really funny, and the the way that they grow and like their relationships evolve, and just how it's all presented to is fantastic. Because the editing is really quick, and he doesn't waste time getting into the conversations and just the, the the story. So it's and what's great about it is it's the episodes are all of varying lengths. Like some are twenty minutes. One of them is just ten minutes long. And so, but it's, uh, it got nominated for a Gotham Award for uh, Breakthrough Web Series, and it's just I recommend giving it a shot because it's it's quite good. 
I'm going to check this out. I actually live in West Hollywood, and I assume a lot of this probably takes place in West Hollywood, which is uh, kind of uh, the gay capital of uh, Southern California. Um, so I'm interested just to check this out to see, uh, you know, the loca- local stuff, and, and maybe I will enjoy it. Um, moving on to the news, uh, one of my favorite movies of the year, actually my favorite movie of the year is War for the Planet of the Apes so far, is is my favorite movie, and um, didn't quite get up there in box stuff, didn't, didn't match Dawn for the Planet of the Apes, but that's not stopping Fox. They're going to launch an Oscars uh, Best Picture campaign. Brad, what do we know about it? Well, War for the Planet of the Apes was obviously fantastic. And it's about time this movie really got some Oscar recognition. So to hear that 20th Century Fox is going to make a big push during a war season to try and get it some love uh, is really good. Like, I guess they're going to really make it about you know the movie and just how intensive of a process it is to make a movie like this and make it seem realistic. Uh, they're trying to get Matt Reeves nominated for the best director. They're trying to get uh, adapted, an adapted screenplay nomination. Um, and as far as, you know, Andy Serkis getting nominated, I'm not sure if that's something that is even likely at this point, but well, the Academy is mostly old white people that probably don't understand performance capture. So I think it's sadly unlikely. Yeah, so that's, that's that's definitely a bummer. But if anything, maybe there can be some kind of, you know, effort to get Andy Serkis some kind of uh, honorary Academy Award. They've given those out before for people who have done tremendous things that have influenced and changed the industry. And Andy Serkis, as a motion capture performer, is definitely one of them. There are so many movies now uh, that we've all seen that are some of our favorites that would not be the same without his performance and innovation by using that technology to create these incredible performances. For sure. Um, I, I hope it gets some recognition. I hope this is the, uh, you know, with Lord of the Rings, it really took them three tries to get like all, all, all that Oscar gold. And I hope uh, th- this apes trilogy gets some recognition uh, at, at the award show, not just the Oscars, but also the golden globes. Um, yeah, for sure. Also in the news, Spider-Man Homecoming, the sequel, is is on the horizon. Uh, Marvel and Sony have hired writers for the sequel. It's not really a surprising announcement. Ben, what do we know? Yes, so Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, who were two of the writers of Spider-Man Homecoming, have been hired officially to, or actually, technically, they're still in negotiations, but again, we've talked about this before on, on this podcast. When announcements like this come out, it's like, you know, 95, 96% confirmed, uh, unless something catastrophic yeah. happens behind the scenes. So for all intents and purposes, these guys are officially coming back to uh, to write the sequel. Um, they are also going to co-write with John Watts, who is the director of the first movie. He's also coming back to direct the second film. And Watts himself also was one of the credited screenwriters on the first uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Homecoming sequel doesn't have a title yet, so it's weird that we're calling it Spider-Man Homecoming 2, but that's sort of what we have to do until they officially give us a real name for it. Um, I think this is good news. Uh, I really loved what they did with um, Spider-Man Homecoming, and it's one of those rare movies that had six credited screenwriters but didn't feel too disjointed and it didn't feel like there were too many cooks in the kitchen so i feel like um, mckenna summers and watts at least half of that creative team coming back to give us more spidey action in a sequel is probably good news 
Um, I, I definitely agree. Uh, they, they seem to have gotten it mostly right with that, um, the first Marvel Sony Spider-Man film. Um, let's jump into Blade Runner. Blade Runner 2049, uh, it seems to be confirmed that it might, it, I mean, it, it, it seems confirmed to me. This is going to be the longest blockbuster of 2017. The only thing that could beat it is Justice League, and I don't think Warner Brothers is going to do that. Jacob, what do we know about it? What we know is that Sony Russia had a listing revealed via the DCP distribution company Kino Plan, which says that Blade Runner 2049 is 163 minutes long, which is 17 minutes shy of three hours, and depending upon which cut you watch, either 46 or 47 minutes longer than the original uh, 1982 Ridley Scott movie. Uh, which is interesting for a few reasons. One, it's interesting that it's an R-rated sequel to a movie that didn't gain its uh, fame until much later in its life, running this long, which is insane. Uh, it is, it, it, it's, it's, it's a vote of confidence. You feel like to me saying, like, we're prepared to make this R-rated sequel to a movie that wasn't a box office hit when it was first released. And let it run this long. And as uh, our own Hoy Tram movie writes in the article on Slash Film, every so after a couple of years, we, t- we tend to get we tend to see one of these a genre movie that runs close to three hours, like Interstellar or the last couple Hobbit movies. But still, I'm very surprised, especially since by its very nature, the first Blade Runner is such a slow moving movie. I mean, as a compliment, I like how it lures you into its pace and lulls you into a sort of hypnotic trance. But it's a movie that feels very long. So I'm wondering if Blade Runner 2049 by being close to three hours, we'll actually maybe pick up the pace or try to recapture the the moody focus on uh, atmosphere instead of plot the original had. I'm very curious to see if this means anything at all. I mean, seeing the clip we saw at Comic-Con, it seemed like – it didn't seem like the pace is, is increased. It seems like it's the same kind of speed as the original. So I'm wondering if this is going to f- feel even longer than that film. But it, it's, it's weird that – you know, Blade Runner 2049 is coming out in a year that uh, Chris Nolan is releasing a film that is, what, almost like an hour shorter or something? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Brad, you wrote about some Star Wars Last Jedi photos that have just been released. Uh, I'm very curious about these because it shows Luke kind of in a dark costume. Has he abandoned the Jedi? Could he be joining the dark side? What do we know? Yeah, it's really weird because he's wearing uh, the Venom symbiote suit, which is <laughs> a surprising twist if I've ever heard one. Uh, hell of a crossover. <laughs> hell of a crossover. I mean, uh, this is even bigger news than when we thought Life was going to be a prequel to, to Venom. <laughs> so, no, it's um, it's nothing earth-shattering because the, the, the outfit that we see in this new picture, which comes from the cover of a Hungarian uh, cinema magazine, um, is actually the same outfit that you can see Luke Skywalker wearing in a behind-the-scenes shot from the sizzle reel that debuted at D23 earlier this year. And it's it's not pure black. Uh, it's definitely not anywhere near as dark as the outfit he wore in Return of the Jedi, but it, he is wearing some darker uh, robes, and he has this sort of like a, pon- a black poncho-like cloak that he's wearing. Um, he's got a leather glove over his uh, robotic hand. And he it, he does look rather ominous in the photo to the point where you might think that there's a chance that maybe he could go a little bit dark. Not necessarily full on dark side, but he clearly has, you know, something dark that's, you know, inside of him. And it probably comes from this guilt that he feels from 
believing that Kylo Ren was the chosen one and not seeing that uh, he was going to turn to the dark side. Um, plus, there's that whole thing from the teacher trailer about believing that the Jedi have to come to an end. So this isn't the the light uh, hero that we're, we saw in the original trilogy and seems like maybe he's even a little darker than we last left him in Return of the Jedi. So, yeah, it should be interesting to see uh, how reflective, you know, this wardrobe change for Luke is uh, as far as the mindset that he's in and what he's trying to accomplish and how he treats Rey, which we know is not uh, a very warm welcome. Um, so, yeah, it'll be def- definitely be an interesting uh, development once we finally get to spend some time with Luke since we didn't get to at you, the end of Force Awakens. You know, they're teasing it so much that it makes me think that this is going to end with him deciding to be a Jedi again, because why tease that he's, you know, not a Jedi if you're going to, if you know, you're going to go in the direction that people that you're not hinting towards. But I would love for this movie to end with Luke deciding to abandon the, you know, to that the Jedi were bad, you know, that everything that they were responsible, you know, that, uh, that the teaching, you know, that essentially the teachings of the Catholic religion are good, but the religion is bad. So I'm going to live off the, the, the morals of those teaching, but not belong to the, and, and not have that thing go forward. I think that would be a very, um, I don't know. It, it, it would be a very courageous direction for a Disney film to go in. I don't think it's going to. What, what, well, what I mean, do you think? I think I was just going to say I was going to butt in and, and say that, uh, Peter, I think everything that we've heard about it and you've told us about it from people that you've heard who have seen the film and stuff have talked about how this is a, a far different Star Wars movie than anything that we've seen before. So I would not be surprised if they decided to do something sort of shocking um, like that. And that seems like a, a good way to keep people talking until the next one. Yeah. And remember that uh, Mark Hamill said that when he first read the script, he was kind of uh, against where Ryan Johnson was taking the character. He didn't mm-hmm. believe that Luke would go in that direction. And uh, I, it, maybe it could add up. I, I have heard that, hey, if you were disappointed with J.J. Abrams' film and disappointed that it was more of the same. Ryan Johnson's film, I've, I've heard, is taking this franchise in such a weird, different direction that, uh, I mean, kind of like the prequels. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's a good comparison because of people's esteem of the prequels. But uh, I, I hope it's a good one. Uh, let's move on. The Joker oh, origin. Oh. Well, what? no, hold on. Before we do that, are we sure that Luke maybe isn't just like completely off his rocker and just goes around Octu kicking porgs? <laughs> you know, I did one of one of the crazy Snoke theories is the that, Snoke <laughs> No, that Snoke is a a being created by the Force and controlled by Luke from afar. Oh gosh, just shoot me now! All these <laughs> all these Snoke theories are the worst garbage imaginable. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a T-shirt that says "Your Snoke Theory Sucks" uh, for, uh, from uh, Steel Wars, which is a podcast. Um, but Brad, your uh, your suggestion has me thinking. Maybe he actually is just like five or six porgs standing on top of each other, wearing a trench coat. I don't right? Know. Yeah, he's like Muppet Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 you have to wonder what are they eating on Octu. It seems like the the only source of food is probably those porgs, right? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, 
Uh, moving on, we've been talking a lot about this Joker origin movie. We only found out about it, I think, last week. But it seems like every day there's a, n- a new uh, bit of news or rumor. Uh, ben, w- what came out today? Yes. So the Joker origin film, which, as we know, is going to be directed by uh, Todd Phillips of The Hangover fame. It's written by Scott Silver, the guy who wrote Eight Mile and is produced by none other than Martin Scorsese. Uh, This movie is apparently going to be and wait for it, guys, a super dark and real Joker origin movie. So I know that's a big shock. I should probably give you some time to recover from that. But uh, MMA fighter. Uh, Brendan Schaub, of all people. By the way, I I love that this source of news comes from an interview with an MMA fighter, but there seems to be some legitimacy behind this, maybe. Yes, so uh, on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, Brendan Schaub said, quote, my boy Todd Feldman put this together with Todd Phillips. It's dark. It's like a dark joker. As a kid, he had a permanent smile and everyone made fun of him. It's like on the streets of Brooklyn. It's super dark and real. End quote. So the the connection that Peter just alluded to was that uh, Brendan Schaub shares an agent with Todd Phillips. Um, so presumably he heard the rundown of these details from that shared agent. Uh, and again, this would not really shock anyone who's been paying attention to the way that DC has been handling this character in particular and their movies as a whole. And just the the very fact that this film exists seems it seems inevitable that this is the way that it's going to go so um i don't know does anyone have any uh any hope for this uh, beyond well, what we already knew well i wanted to say that um first of all i've heard that this is going to be like a gritty almost award uh drama like uh what what was that ben affleck movie that came out last year um Live by night. Live by night. What that wanted to be, I feel like, is what what I've heard that this is going for. And it's interesting that they're saying that he had the smile on his face since he was a kid. Because I believe, and Jacob could correct me if I'm wrong, that in the comics, he was a a, a gangster in his 20s or 30s and fell into a bat of like uh, toxic material. And that's how he became the Joker. I believe that was his origin story in the comics. Am, Am I incorrect, Jacob? There's been no definitive origin story. The most famous take on it is Alan Moore and Brian Boland's The Killing Joke, which is about a stand-up comedian who is essentially forced to work for a criminal outfit and, that, and he falls into chemicals, which is loosely adapted by the 1989 Batman movie to be just a criminal who falls in the bat of chemicals. But as far as I know, there is no official documentation on how the Joker was created. There's only a series of conflicting stories, which only adds to the chaos of the character. Although it should be noted, and this is actually noted in the article on the site, is that having a permanent smile to begin with, it feels like an interesting callback to um, The Man Who Laughs, which is a uh, 1928 silent uh, horror adventure movie about a man whose face is carved into a permanent smile. And it's sort of this swashbuckling gothic adventure. And people have actually used stills from that movie and photoshopped them to create art for the Joker. And his that character's design also inspired the original look of the Joker in the comics. So even if it's not directly based on a comic book origin, there's a weird tie in there for people who want to look back some some film history. Yeah, I just like how this origin story totally sounds like the origin story of the Grinch from How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, sort of. It's it's like, you might be joking, I don't know if you are, Brad, but it sort of sounds like that to me, where he's sort of like bullied as a kid, and yeah, it turns up to be, you know, grows up to be this sort of evil figure. 
the, yeah, the, no, I, I was joking about liking it, but I'm not joking about the about equating the two because it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting because for me, I think my experience with movies and movie villains is when you reveal their origin story, they become less mysterious. Like we don't want to see, uh, you know, uh, where these. I feel like it. It, it just uh, takes away a little bit. Of the the mystery. I mean, does yeah, anybody Michael disagree? Myers? Michael Myers in Halloween is like the prime example, right? Like he's the sort of primordial, the shape. He's like this being, but then as soon as you go back and say that, you know, oh, he's this young kid and he was obsessed with his sister and all this stuff, it sort of takes a different tone. Yeah, but I really like seeing Darth Vader force choke somebody and thinking about that time when he screamed yippee and ran out of Watto's shot. <laughs> Because that, that's like the definitive moment of like, man, this kid's gonna be one evil son of a bitch. <laughs> I know, I know, Ben. That, that, that's so wizard. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know Ben's joking, but I, every time I think about this, the, the Rob Zombie remake of Halloween is what comes to mind because that movie so fundamentally does not understand the appeal of its villain, and the whole appeal of the Joker is that he's a force of nature nobody can understand, and trying to pin that down is such a futile, stupid thing. Yeah. Okay, guys, before we get into the Game of Thrones goodness, Brad is going to be leaving us. Brad, where can we find more of your work online? Oh, I'm all over SlashFilm.com, writing about Star Wars and movies and TV shows and all that jazz. You can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And I also have a podcast called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, available on iTunes and some other podcasting platforms if you like podcasts about movies and movie trivia games and general nonsense yes uh well thank you for joining us brad no thank you for having me peter okay now in our feature presentation we're going to discuss who is currently winning the game of thrones uh i should warn you if you have not seen the current season which is season seven seven yeah uh there will be spoilers here i guess and spoilers in in the the when we get to the spoiler room we don't know anything definite of what's coming because no one does i don't even think uh george rr martin knows but if you want to stay away from speculation, crazy fan theories, you might want to skip that. But before we get to that, let's get into this definitive ranking of Game of Thrones that uh, Ben and Jacob did for SlashFilm.com. Uh, so t- tell me about this article, Ben. Uh, so <laughs> Jacob came to me and uh, was wondering if I would want to help him out uh, ranking the – essentially doing a power ranking of all of the living Game of Thrones characters, characters who survived season seven. And just to talk about, um, yeah, like where we think they fall as far as uh, who is winning the Game of Thrones, who – you know, what the survivability is of a lot of these characters, what their odds are of coming out of this whole thing on top. It's sort of a, a whole nebulous uh, set of criteria that basically just boil down into us having a lot of fun writing some goofy stuff about Game of Thrones characters. Such um, lies. It's all science. It's all very serious. There's no humor in this piece at all. It's all <laughs> all numbers, all algorithms, all figured out. Math, science, citadel, knowledge. <laughs> J- yes. J- Jacob, tell me about one of your picks on this list. Well, I'm going to start at the very bottom. There were 32 people on this list. I'm going to go to number 31, an entry I wrote up. And that's Jamie Lannister. My guy, Jamie Lannister. My, my evil, incestuous, murderous, but still bizarrely likable guy who decided at the end of the season, you know what? 
my sister the queen is doing so well and backstabbing so effectively that I'm going to grow a conscience and ride north to go fight zombies because I said I would. And that's not how you win the Game of Thrones, Jamie Lannister. That's how you die. <laughs> ben, what about you? Uh, so I chose, I'm going to jump up to number 18 on the list, and this would be, for me, Gregor the Mountain Clegane. Uh, I feel like uh, the mountain, who is basically a resurrected zombie at this point, is clearly the more brutal of the Clegane brothers. Uh, I think I give him fairly good odds. You know, he's sort of hovering near the middle of the pack. But uh, one distinct advantage I think that he has is he's probably the only person in Westeros who could convincingly switch sides as a last-ditch survival effort and go unnoticed among the army of the dead. So I feel like you got to give him some points for that. And uh, Jacob, you have you have another pick for us. Yeah, I have one that's very serious and not a joke at all. Uh, and that is number 15, Gilly. You know Gilly, the wildling who Sam's all hooked up with? Well, remember how she was reading all the paperwork? I was like, hey, here's some interesting information. And Sam was all like, that's not interesting. I have more important things to do. Then in the finale, the information became very, very important. And Sam took credit for it. Like, total man move. Thanks, Sam. Well, guess what? (laughs) Gilly figured it out. Gilly knew in advance the truth about Jon Snow, the truth about Rhaegar Targaryen's broken marriage and his secret marriage to uh, Lyanna Stark put Gilly in charge of this. Put her on the Iron Throne. Let's see what happens. Watch stuff get done, man. <laughs> Let's hear one more from you, Ben. Uh, the number 26 slot on this list, guys, is none other than Hot Pie, who I'm sure you, some of you remembered was still alive. Uh, I, in this list, uh, sort of envision him as a... Uh, a power-hungry maniac who is playing the super long game uh, with just simplicity. <laughs> That's his whole thing, is he is just going to sit there and bake some pies and, and you know, cook some stuff while everyone else kills each other off. And that, to me, uh, you know, the, the, the brilliant simplicity of Hot Pie puts anything that Littlefinger ever concocted to shame. Uh, but really, I think it's just hilarious to envision everyone else dying and Hot Pie just sort of like walking into the throne room, maybe with some food and just uh, chilling on the Iron Throne and, you know, just eating lunch up there because nobody else is around. OK, so we don't have the time to go through this whole list on the podcast. If you want to read this, uh, this, this must be the, the most serious piece of film journalism that we've ever published <laughs> on SlashFilm.com. If you want to read it. Go to SlashFilm.com, or you can go to the show notes, and there's a link in the show notes. Who who ranked number one on this definitive ranking? You'll have to go there to find out. Um, guys, join me in the spoiler room right over here. Uh, there, there's this truly wacky fan theory that's been going around. I know, Jacob, you have been very against it, but there has been some new evidence to support it. So uh, this isn't a spoiler. We don't know this is true. Do we know it's true? I don't we know. Not. What? <laughs> no, we don't. No, not, it's true. No, not at all. Okay. So, you know, decide right now if you want to turn off the podcast or not. It, it, it's your decision. Uh, we, we know nothing. So, uh, yeah, you had your chance. Okay. So, Jacob, tell us about it. Okay. This is a really stupid fan theory I've hated for a very long time, and now I think it's true. Boo-hoo, poor me. But here's <laughs> how it goes. Uh, the theory is that Bran Stark is the Night King. He is the villain of the entire show, and through all kinds of weird psychic time travel warging, he sends his mind back in time where he possesses or gets trapped within the body of the Night King and is either trapped within this vessel or enacting a grander plan we don't understand yet 
and essentially causing this entire war to begin in the first place. This seems really silly, it seems preposterous, and most of the evidence I've seen so far boils down to they occasionally wear similar clothes, which I don't know. But during the season finale, The Dragon and the Wolf, when Eastwatch collapses and the zombie army marches into Westeros, and while all of us are too busy worrying the Tormund's dead, and when he says he's not dead, but, you know, he's my guy, I had to worry, um, the zombie army, when seen from above, takes on the very distinctive shape of the Stark sigil, which is a dire wolf. The zombie army is marching in the shape of a direwolf head, which, as I write in this article, means a couple things. It could be a, a, an inside joke that the visual effects team put in. It could be the, the zombie army letting survivors at Eastwatch know, know, hey, we're heading to Winterfell. We, this is where we're going next. The Starks are on our list. Or it could be a strange psychic boy trapped inside an ice demon trying to let everybody know what's going on with a cry for help. I, I, I don't know, but... The fact that this zombie army is forming the shape of a Stark sigil says something, right, Ben? I feel like it's completely coincidental. I don't, I, I mean, I, looking at the screenshot that you have in on the article, and everyone can go and check this out for themselves, but to me it almost looks more like a bear than uh, a dire wolf, and I think that, um, so what does that mean, that, that it's like a secret, yeah, well, secret Mormont on this? Yeah, I was going to say, how does that change things, Ben? I mean, well, it just it, it the whole thing revolves around um, you know Bran being a Stark, and the direwolf is the the sigil of the Stark family. So if it's not actually a direwolf, then that sort of uh, takes away a lot of the quote unquote credence of this theory. But I I just think that that would be so stupid for that to be the truth. And I can't imagine. I mean, Game of Thrones has done some dumb things, but I cannot imagine that they would. Uh, that they would go that far and have it, it just seems it's it's too um, it's too ridiculous and then it's also too like clean you know it's too circular and I feel like George R. R. Martin is more of a, a dirty writer than that you know he's he's not he's proven that he's not necessarily full on interested in uh, the classic storytelling methods right like he his whole thing is like nobody is safe anybody can go at any time um he's clearly influenced by lord of the rings but i just don't think that the ending is going to be quite as um easy or pat as like oh guess what brand was the night king the whole time it's just it seems um one step too far for me here's where i'm going to try to stick a pin in your ironclad balloon uh <laughs> which is that if you go back and read George R. R. Martin's novels, there are tales not of the Night King, but of the Knight's King, who was the 13th Lord Commander of the Wall, who encountered, I'm going to quote from the book here, a woman with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars, and upon marrying her, embarked on a rampage so deadly and dangerous with his supporters that the ancient Stark family and the ancient king beyond the wall had to team up to kill him. And his name was wiped from the record. Nobody knows who he is. But if you read between the lines of the book, it's heavily implied that he was a Stark named Brandon. So I'm not going to say that Game of Thrones, the show, is following the Song of Ice and Fire on the same track. But I do think they're parallel tracks. Damn it. Well, if his name was Brandon, then I think that actually does give a, make me take it a little bit more seriously. Because I do sort of like the theory that Bran 
is every brand, every version of every brand that has ever been sort of, uh, you know, back through the timeline. Like the wall was famously constructed or, or at least designed by, I think, somebody named Brand the Builder. So I, I do I did sort of like the um, hinting that that has been going on and the speculating that's been going on that, oh, maybe we'll discover throughout the course of the series that Bran has sort of been slowly going back in time and, and perfecting his three-eyed raven powers and uh, has been responsible for uh, a lot of the things that we've seen up until this point. But I didn't realize that the character's name was Brandon. And now it's like, I can't, I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't rightfully believe that the brand is all brands theory and then also discount this part as just because i don't like it so uh damn it jacob i guess but, I, but I one caveat I... one caveat here would be that i vividly remember the knight's king story from the books it was only when doing my research for this that i find conversation about this character supposed to be being named brandon mm. so while i can vividly back up a ancient stark being the knight's king i I will say take maybe 70% um, believability with the whole him being named Brandon part. Okay. Oh, I mean, so let's put aside the, the plausibility of it. Uh, just as a storytelling um, uh, piece, as a piece of storytelling, Jacob, would you be satisfied if that came to be? One thing that's interested me, and it's something that I've grown maybe more accustomed to and more uh, at ease with over the seasons of Game of Thrones is that here's a show and a story that started off being deliberate anti-fantasy. Like it's saying, here's a fantasy world where there aren't any wizards, where there aren't any dragons, where everybody's down to muck, and it's all about politics and all about talking in rooms. That was always the appeal of here's a fantasy world with a fantasy kind of stripped out. And what the past few seasons have been slowly revealing is that Game of Thrones actually is more of a traditional fantasy story. It literally is the tale of an evil force invading a fantasy land and the magical forces coming up against it. Magical forces like a, a girl who can change faces, a guy who can see the future, um, a uh, leader who is resurrected from the dead. So piece by piece, I feel like Game of Thrones is revealing itself to be the sweeping traditional fantasy story, just that one that instead of being told thousands of years later where all the dirty bits cut out, were thrust right into it. So I'm, I'm wondering if the big reveal here or the, the storytelling purpose of this isn't a plot twist as much as it is sort of revealing that, hey, you've been watching things very traditional all along, something that in, in, the, in the legends won't have all the dirty stuff. But here we are right now with all the stuff that, we, that, that they'll cut out to make it more palatable for children in a couple of generations. Is, well, is that that's, yeah, that's a fascinating reading, and I think uh, I—I mean, now I guess I won't be as mad as I as I would have been before if this theory does come to pass. Okay, guys, we're doing too good on time, and I can't uh, allow us going as long as we usually do. Where can we find more of your work online, Jacob? I am the managing editor at slashfilm.com. I am there every single day. And Ben. Oh, and uh, Twitter, Jacob S. Hall. Follow me. Yes, I am. Uh, yeah, I'm also at SlashFilm.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. And you can find me on Twitter at SlashFilm. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Overcast, Google Play, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please, we're looking for uh, questions for the mailbox. Uh, we we have a bunch, but there's not any like really great ones. So please send your questions our way. Peter at SlashFilm.com. That's Peter at SlashFilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location so we can mention it on the air. And as always, uh, 
spread word of this podcast. Uh, t- tell people you like it. Uh, you know, we, we, we need more listeners. Uh, if you like the podcast, go to iTunes, give us a review. Uh, we've been getting some really awesome reviews on iTunes. And I, I want to thank everybody that has been uh, spreading the good word. And uh, we will see you tomorrow. If you and your team want to cut down on busy work and get more choice and control over accounts payable, you need Bill. Bill Accounts Payable is your secret weapon for saving time on AP. And with a special offer at bill.com slash podcast, you'll save money too. With Bill, streamline your entire AP process, including bill creation, approvals, and payments. You can pay with ACH, credit card, check, and international wire transfer. Plus, you can easily integrate with most accounting software. No wonder hundreds of thousands of businesses are already using Bill to manage their AP. Schedule a free demo now to see how Bill can automate your financial operations. And right now, get 15% off when you subscribe to Bill Accounts Payable. There's never been a better time to sign up. This special offer is available for a limited time only at bill.com slash podcast. Terms apply. See bill.com slash podcast for details.